Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. I'm Casey Scott. I'm an alcoholic, and I'm in recovery. <laughs> why, why, why are you laughing? You've never started that way before. Well, though. because we used to say we'd have a sponsor, but right now we currently don't have a sponsor, so right. I just filled in the blank. Nice job. Remember what? those books well as your kid where you fill in the blanks or choose your own ending? It, yeah, choose your own adventure. Yeah, and so yeah. it's just my own adventure. Sometimes my mind's like choosing my own adventure. It's like, am I going to say this? Am I going to do that? Well, and then I just go with it and see what happens. It is fun hanging out with you because I never know what's going to come Nine out times of your out mouth. of ten, it works out. Yeah. Uh, one time out of ten, you end up in rehab. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that, it just, and it that just, worked it, out, too, yeah, eventually. Yeah, it seems to be working out. Yeah, yeah. So um, that's Dr. Matt. He's a clinical psychologist. He's the smartest man in the room. Oh, I don't know. Josh, I, Josh is valedictorian. That's right, of Utah right? State. I wasn't, I wasn't valedictorian. Go Aggies. Me yeah. and him got that in common. Right. But he's like an Adonis. But he graduated, right? Yeah, and I drive a mom's car and got a dad's body. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? If you want to admire somebody, admire Josh. I do admire Josh. Yeah, I mean, his physique, his hair. He's got it all, man. He does. I can't believe he's single. Where should the ladies call? Uh, I would just, you know. <laughs> Facebook? Hit yeah. him up on Facebook? I don't think that age is, I don't think he's they on don't, Facebook. They don't do no. Facebook, do they? He's probably on uh, Tinder, Bumble. <laughs> Yeah. Just search for sexy Jesus. Yeah. That, you know Bumble. I mean? Bumble. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He'll, he'll reach out to you. Uh, so I, I'm glad we're starting out with a little laughter because I've had a tough week. Have you? A really tough week. Uh, I have somebody really close to me um, that is currently battling addiction. Right. And uh, it's not my story to tell, so I can't tell any more than that. But I can tell you that everybody I know who's associated with this person is looking to me for answers. And, sure. And, and yeah. I'm glad that I could provide direction and some resources, you know, but other than that, um, which is, is, is a big help. Right. But I keep telling these people they have got to want it. Uh, all we can do is have boundaries, be supportive. And after that, it's up to them. Are, are, are you or the people in your life that are concerned about this person struggling keeping the boundaries because we talk a lot about how you know we don't want to enable but we also love you know friends and family that are struggling with addiction it's a hard balance to find you know what to be honest with you i don't think there's ever been clear-cut set boundaries you know what i mean it was one of those things that i think a lot of addicts and loved ones of addicts go through where they're waiting to see how it all unfolds uh you know we've said it before uh Sometimes people think if uh, they ignore the problem, it'll go away. Right. Uh, sometimes they think that it will just work itself out. We call that denial. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and denial is very powerful. And there's a lot of it in recovery. Yeah. And, you know, you, I, I don't see it or I distance myself from it. I ignore it. Freud called it the queen mother of defense mechanisms. It's the main thing we do. Uh, and it's not healthy. Yeah. Uh, you know. And so there's then that. And, and you know, and... We've said it before. Hope is amazing. Uh, and you hope that somebody will get better. You'll hope they will do the next right thing. You'll hope for a lot of things. Mm-hmm. But prayer is also amazing. But you cannot pray this disease away. 
Nope. As much as you want to. I think you can ask for uh, guidance. I think you can ask for solace. I think you can ask for help. But praying is not going to make this go away. Well, what you're what you're sort of illustrating here is all the people around this person mm-hmm. being very active and doing things like having hope, talking, supporting, praying. But in the end, all of that support, all of those resources, it comes down to this person. What is their journey? What's their motivation? Are they ready to change? You and I talk a lot on this show about, you know, the process of change, the science of change. And it, it comes down eventually to that person's level of commitment and, and readiness. And, they got to have skin in the game. It reminds me of that yeah. time I was sitting in my therapist's office up at Pinnacle Recovery. And my therapist goes, hey, I got to let you know something. And I go, what? And he goes, I don't want your recovery worse than you do. Yeah. <laughs> And right now it seems like I do, and I don't want that to be the case. And so if you're wasting my time, please don't. We'll just sit here. He goes, if you don't want it, then you're not going to get it. Nobody can want your – if I want the recovery for you, I can want all I want, but that's not going to make a difference. Right, right. Just like all the the support and resources in the world can be available. And you know what? Here in the state of Utah – we have a ton. Yes. We have a lot of great places and resources and a lot of caring people that want to give their time and energy to support people who are ready for recovery. But in the end, you're right. It's up to the person. And so we were talking about that. And then we went and looked at some recovery houses and all that other stuff. And one of the questions somebody asked me was, will this recovery house work? And I go, sure. And they go, well, you don't sound too certain. And I go, no, it will. And you know what? There's more than a dozen in the state that will work, yeah. but it will only work if that person wants it to work. Right. It's sort of like going to the gym. What yep. you put into it is what you're going to get out of it. Any gym can can get you fit if you put the right amount of effort into it. You can go to Rob Eastman's gym and you can get fit. You can get yoked and, and, and you can do that, but you can still go Wait, there. You can get Yoked. Yoked. Okay. Yeah, yoked. But it reminds me, and this is, hear me out on this, but it makes sense. Like you can have all the state of the art equipment. Right. And you can get big and you can get buff and you can get everything you want. But when Rocky fought the Russians, where did he get big at? In a cabin. In Siberia. Right. Went up there and he was lifting logs and he was running through snow and he was doing all that because he wanted it. He wanted and, and it It bad. didn't matter what it was going to take, he was going to do it. And so what I'm saying is that, yeah, these recovery houses. be like Rocky. Be like Rocky. Yeah. But you, you've got all these recovery houses and they're all. They, they have some differences, but your point is well, well taken. And that is if a person shows up mm-hmm. and they are committed to their recovery, they're going to utilize what they, they're going to get everything they need from that place. When I was in recovery, I walked by that girl on the couch and for three days, she said 13, 13, 13. Finally, I asked her, what is this 13? She goes, 13%. 13% of us are going to make it. And I said, I'm going to be one of them. Mm-hmm. She goes, why? I go, because I get a choice. You've already accepted the, the numbers. I, I've got a choice in this and mm-hmm. I'm going to fight and I'm going to get it. And I think that's how you need to attack your recovery. You got to go, how bad do you want it? So let me ask you this. Yeah. This loved one, this friend, family, whatever, loved one of yours, uh, just your opinion, scale of one to 10, 10 being the best, where do you think they're at as far as how badly they want it? Just just a guess. I'd say seven or eight. Okay. Is that enough, do you think? So there's, there's for me, and I can only speak on my recovery and what I know. There's a physical set, mindset, and, you know, I mean, there's, there's there's a couple components. And I think mentally a lot of people will say, I'm an eight and I want this. And then they realize that they're going to have to put boots to the ground and they're going to have to do the work. 
Well, if they're at eight, why aren't they at ten? I don't know. Yeah. You, you, that's only a question or a question that can be answered by the person, probably. Because I, I, I think there's still yourself a little out. I no, I still think there's a lot of unknown. Um, yeah. You know uh, of how it's all going to play out. I've been very fortunate. I've been very blessed. I mean, I had great support system. I had great friends. I had a company that believed in me. Uh, right out of rehab, I had people who were willing to give me jobs. And that's not to say that I wasn't willing to do the work. And I took every job that was offered to me. Yeah. I drove my daughter's bike to Smith's to get milk for the family. I walked, I took the train, whatever was put in front of me, I said, I will do it. Right. Because that's what it's going to take to get what I need back. So and you feel I'm, like you were a 10 out of 10? I, I Yeah, I was. I do. Yeah. For, for, from. I think you are. Probably not until my second week into rehab. I think the first couple of weeks, I still thought I was going to so be everybody. So what did everybody. that conversation do for you? You've mentioned that before on the show, like where that therapist said, you know, that, that uh, I don't want it more than you want it. So what what changed in your mind at the why was that a pinnacle uh moment up to then my ego was such that everything really just worked out and i managed to finagle and finesse anything i ever wanted and got whatever i needed while you drink while i drink right and i would say that's true i don't think that's an exaggeration at all and i remember sitting down in this process group with 15 guys, and I've told this story before, so sorry if you've heard it. And I remember this guy next to me, this little Mexican dude, was completely tatted up. Neck tattoos, head tattoos, face tattoos. If there was empty skin, he could put a tattoo on it, and did. <laughs> and I got ready to sit down, and this is the first time I was introducing myself to the group. Yeah. Uh, and I was getting ready just to regale these guys with the story. And I swear, in my mind, I thought when I'm done with it, they're going to stand up, they're going to cheer, and they're going to walk me to the front door and say, you're not supposed to be here. Yeah, right. I'm not kidding you. I like in my I, mind. I believe that's you know, what you thought. You know what I mean? I, I, I thought they were going to be like, yeah. Oh my! This Let's guy put gets, this guy in charge. Yeah. Why, why aren't we listening to this guy? Yeah. And I got about a third into my story, and this guy leans over and goes, "Hey," and I go, "Yeah." And he goes, "Shut the f up." And I go, <laughs> "What?" He goes, "Shut the f up." Yeah. He goes, "You're really going to sit down here and try to spin this BS?" He goes, I don't know if you noticed this, but there's 14 of us who have had that exact same story and tell that exact same tale. Yeah. And so until you want to get real, I don't want to hear another word from you. Yeah. He put you in your place. Huh? And, I, and I wanted to go, oh, they didn't tell you I was? Yeah. <laughs> I'm Casey Scott. Here you go. Stop dead at didn't the door care. right there. Did yeah. not care. Didn't, didn't even bother. Didn't matter. Me. He was like, do not sit down here and try to BS us. Isn't that just the most growth potential opportunity when your ego any of us oh yeah when your ego just gets checked that is that is an opportunity for growth but man it is tough he checked me brought me up and checked me again yeah you know what i mean i was like whoa yeah. and so that was the first inclination but we all need that yeah sometimes. that was the first I one think. that i was like well maybe this is not going to work yeah maybe i'm not going to be able to get out of this and then when i sat in there in the therapist and he goes i got better things to do than have you sit down and lie to me so yeah. until you want to be real, we'll just sit here in silence. Yeah. I do not want your sobriety worse than you do. And if I do, this is not going to work. Sometimes when I talk to, to patients, we talk about, do, are we having an inward focus or an outward focus? If you think about your style of thinking throughout the day, am I outward focused? Well, you have to be. Like the things that we do, we're, we're focused on out, outside of us, the job that we have, the people that we talk to, the things that we do. But how often do we shift to an inward focus? How what do we do we purposefully ever 
kind of do the self-check? Am I focusing inward? How do I think about this? How do I feel about this? How do I evaluate? Do I validate or invalidate myself? Where am I at? And I think that people in entertainment like yourself who have big personalities are are 99% of the time outward focused. 100%. Right? I spent the first half of my life being outward, yeah. trying to make you laugh, trying to see where you wanted to go and try to give you what you want. I never self-reflected. I never checked in with me to see how I'm going. Well, I'm going to hold out. I think you had 1%. And that 1%... That's where you, that you covered that up with drinking. Yeah. Right. Like, like that, because the inward focus can get pretty stressful, pretty dicey, especially if you're good at the outward focus. If you're good at working the room, if you can walk in and like, I remember, um, you were maybe a year into sobriety and I was downtown with friends having, uh, having dinner and stuff and we we're walking from one place to another. And I look over, I didn't know you were downtown and you're over there making friends with the guy playing guitar on the corner. Do you remember that? Yeah, I was trying to get him a job inside the bar. I was yeah. like, it's going to be a lot warmer in here, man, and the tips will be better. So there it is. Casey's like working the room, and the room is just he's trying to bring this guy from outside. It was hilarious. And I'm like, that is your talent. But the inward focus wasn't a natural talent. And I think having our ego checked, having a therapist really force you to look inward, that is such a growth-oriented opportunity uh, that I think that is where we t- we go from that pre-contemplation to contemplation and then into action. We can't really get into action until we learn to have an inward focus. And, and I think that's the key to where all this whole conversation right now today is like, is a person, is this person, this friend, loved one of yours, are they ready for that inward focus? We can wonder if they're at an eight or a nine or a 10, but really... How much inward focus are they willing to have in their life right now? That's, are they ready that's to the shine key. the light yeah. on that and and, yeah. and deal with the consequences yeah. where they may fall? And a good therapist can promote that. Uh, 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 a little guy in your group can yell at you and, and promote that. But in the end, you have to be willing to look inward. And uh, that can be scary. But that's why finding the right facility, finding the right therapists and things uh, – you know, and being willing to do that, they can support you in it, but you still have to be the one that takes the plunge. That's why you're the smartest man in the room. I don't know about that. I, I love I'm it. Still, no, I'm uh, holding out on, I think Josh. I almost said an amen when you shut up. Okay. I was like, amen. Hallelujah. You can. Don't go, no, go right ahead. It's, it's, it's that, worse now. Then I'll have to check my ego even more. Hey, we've got a great show for you today. We're going to introduce you to a young man. His name is Brian Heaton. Yeah. He's been at Renaissance Ranch for 12 years, started as the chef. He's now the CEO. Uh, the executive director. Not still, sure. it's a big. Not sure what that means. Still, it's a big title. It's a bigger title than me. Yeah. It, it, you, you know, you went from chef to that. I mean, that's huge. Well, and chef by chef, we mean a pretty shoddy cook. <laughs> pretty shoddy cook. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Right on. But they're also going to talk to us about this great thing that's going on. It's called the Village Effect, and it's a resource for those uh, looking to help in the mental health uh, arena. I'm excited about it. It sounds really cool, and it sounds like its time has come. And he's, he's we, teaming we up with the, this. a good friend of ours. Rob Eastman, who's also here. We're going to find out more about that in just a few seconds. You're listening to Project Recovery right here on KSL. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? 
I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist. Our guest today is Brian Heaton. Uh, we talked about a little earlier in the in the podcast. You started out as a chef at Renaissance Ranch, and then you moved to executive director, but that's really not the case. You actually started as a patient. Correct. And uh, yeah. before we get to what brought you there, tell us a little bit about Brian. Where did you grow up? Who are you? You know, kind of a little story. Yeah, sure. I'm a thanks. I'm, my name's Brian. I'm an addict in recovery. Um, I uh, my parents are from Logan, Cache Valley. Uh, I didn't grow up there, but I still have a lot of family up there and a lot of ties up there. Um, mostly grew up in the Sandy area up by Albion Middle School until I was 12, and then we moved to Farmington. So I really um, kind of grew up in, in Farmington, Utah, you know, going to Lagoon and throwing dimes and shot glasses. Which was know. crazy because that was a thing. And, and, because my mom used to smoke and she'd send <laughs> us to Lagoon and give us a handful of dimes. And yeah. we spent hours trying to win her ashtrays. You know what I mean? <laughs> At Lagoon. And that was a real thing. You know, yeah. and, as a matter of fact, I, remember that, I was yeah. talking with my kids. I was like, I remember being in fourth grade and making ashtrays in kinder in, in oh, school yeah. Yeah, to yeah. bring home to your parents. And I was always wondering about what if your parents don't smoke? And they go, oh, it's a change jar. It's like, yeah, but it's really an ashtray. I remember making my, my parents an ashtray and, <laughs> and bringing it home. And I, my parents are the last people that would ever smoke. And I remember walking home with this. And it wasn't until that moment that I hit the front porch that I was like, what am I doing? Like, why am I bringing my parents? And I, I remember saying to my mom, like, here you go, mom, it's an ashtray. And she was like, oh, thanks. <laughs> I'm going to have to start smoking now. Yeah. Uh, it you came with what? a pack of marbles. I don't think they do that game anymore. They don't. Game, but, but you could, that was the easy one to win. The rest of them are sort of rigged. And so yeah. I would, I would, and I like to collect. I liked how they looked, the shot glasses. Or do you know how you won that game? Yeah, flipping dimes, yeah. But you, but you put a little saliva on the dime. Oh. And it See, made I'm a not stick. a cheater. Yeah, I was. I was. And so you put a little spit on the dime and it made it stick. Uh, I, didn't, I, I wish we'd have met in junior high. My life would be so much better. You'd have so many more shot bashes and ashtrays. I would, yeah. But yeah. you grew up in Farmington. Um, yeah. Pretty good childhood? Yeah, pretty good childhood. I mean, I, my story's nothing is... Uh, I mean, it's my story. I wouldn't, I, so I don't want to say it's run of the mill. But I was growing up going to scout camp and playing ball, baseball, basketball, soccer, uh, golf, football. I mean, um, all American kid, all American kid, big Had family, a, big family, um, four siblings. Yeah, four yeah. siblings and and big extended family, big big Utah extended family. You know, grew up religious, grew up in a religious home. Lots of cousins, um, all that kind of lots stuff. Lots of cousins, you know. Expect- Where were you in your sibling order? Second oldest, so have two younger brothers and a little sister, mm-hmm. and then an older brother. So uh, it seems like everything was good, but uh, that's normally not the case if you end up on this podcast. Uh, yeah. Something <laughs> seems to have to have happened. Yeah, so it's kind of a, a Jekyll and the Hyde thing. I was always a creative kid. I always, I was always a curious kid, and so. Um, 
Jekyll and Hyde, meaning I, I, I actually enjoyed going to church. I, I, I benefited from that, the structure, and, and, and just had some positive kind of vibes and feelings growing up in that church. Um, but then I would like roll homemade cigarettes at recess in sixth grade and smoke them under the pine tree. And so things just were kind of in – it was black and white with me. I, I didn't live in the middle a whole lot. Which led to, um, I think, dishonesty was probably maybe the defect of character that that kind of fueled a lot of it was not 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 having the courage to tell the truth about what's really going on in my life from the ages of you know twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, because uh, I felt like I had to check the boxes. So, yeah. so for the listeners that may not be aware, I'm sure most of them are. You know, if you grow up in an active LDS home. Then things like drinking and smoking are completely out there against the religion very specifically. So as a sixth grader, you're 11 turning 12 in sixth grade. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, what, I mean, was it just curiosity? Was it a sense of rebellion? Like, like if you were having a good experience going to church and absorbing all those teachings, uh, why are you rolling cigarettes in, in, on the playground? Just to help me understand that. Yeah, I don't know if I can. I mean, yeah. I think it was just kind of have this – this kind of impulsive, curious, creative, um, and and maybe some kind of um, like I want to rebel, you know. Sometimes, yeah. even still, I kind and of I, have this uh, um, like I just like to to rebel. See, I imagine myself sitting next to you underneath that tree, rolling cigarettes with you. And yeah. some of it, for me, I can just tell you from my experience, is the shock value uh, of other kids. You know what I mean? And going, hey, do you see what those guys, you know, because people are talking about us. Maybe you hit on something. That that rings true for me is like getting attention or, or validation from other kids and they're laughing and having a good time. And, yeah. and I like to, you know, maybe I like people to laugh at me and accept me. Kids are not going to go home and talk about what they learn in English class, but they'll go home and talk about the two idiots smoking cigarettes underneath the tree. That's true. I mean, mean, that's the way my mind works. I mean, I'm just telling you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So you were doing that. uh, I find it very interesting because you're the first person who said it, but maybe because it rings true with me, it was the dishonesty, is the manipulation of of being a chameleon somewhat – to, mm-hmm. to, to play into whoever was in front of you. And when you do that, you're not honest with yourself. Right. Because you're doing what I did and giving everybody what they want. Yeah. So my identity at that point, looking back, I mean, no, obviously no self-awareness of this back then. But now looking back, it's like a, my identity was shaped around what you're talking about, which was maybe, maybe you know, five to seven external boxes. It's like, okay, Sunday I'm this person. And then when I go play baseball, I'm this person. And then when I go to school, I'm this person. So I'm putting on all these different masks, taking them off to go to the next box, right? If that makes sense. And and that's a tough way to go. Mm-hmm. When you're physically, emotionally, mentally growing up, it's like, man, how do you find strength and foundation? Even though I have some really positive mentors and, and uh, you know, really positive friends and, and really positive external, like um, – Places that I can plug into, and I, and I was plugged in. Um, but, yeah, I, th- I think it was just kind of a um, – I, I never really felt comfortable. I always kind of had this um, this fear of of uh, not being enough or not adding up or, or looking to the future, man. And it's like, what if, I, what if I'm not good at that? What if I fail at that? Um, See, for me – And I remember that as a as – a, as a kid, as a teenager. I had the same fears. And my fear, biggest fear, and this is the first time I ever said on this, is like, 
if you knew who I really was, you wouldn't like me. Yeah. I think to some degree that's a developmental fear. And for some people it's sort of passing. And what you described, like having the different boxes or the different roles that you were, that's also to some degree developmental, especially in late childhood to early adolescence where you're like, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a religious person, I'm a student, I'm an athlete, I'm a friend, I'm a son. You know, you have all these different things. And as you're growing, your personality and your identity is developing. And eventually, ideally, what we'd like to see in healthy development is a synthesizing of all those. They kind of meld together and you become you still play baseball and go to church and go to scouts and go to school, but you sort of become the same person in all those d- different roles, even though, you know, you do different things in those different roles. You feel like the same person in all those roles. That's the ideal development. And then that fear kind of goes away because you accept yourself like I'm still me regardless of my role. Uh, people want to Google social scripts. You can mm-hmm. Google that. But for a lot of people – they don't feel the permission or they don't feel that acceptance to have it all synthesized into one person in different roles. And so you become different people in different roles. You, you feel like I have to be completely this way to be accepted here and completely that way to be accepted there. And so you're right. What, what inevitably develops is a lack of synthesized identity, right? You don't really feel like you really know who you are. And then dishonesty is required to keep it up, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're going to be the rebellious, smart-alecky person in this group, but then the, the obedient, religious person in this group, those don't really go together easily. And so you, you kind of have to use dishonesty and deception, and, and people start to go, well, I don't know him that way, or I don't know him this way. you know. And it, it uh, creates a tension that is hard to maintain as you get older. Yeah. Well, and I think, and then when you start countering any moral or morals or values that you do carry with mm-hmm. you, when you start to live and, and counter those, then then we start talking about for me things like, um, like I have a predisposition for depression in my family. You know, that's that that runs through, and 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 some and a little anxiety, and and um, I'm pretty laid back, so not a ton of anxiety or stress. But um, I think when you start to live against who you authentically feel like maybe maybe this is the guy that I am uh, and you, and I think you get that through through feelings on a feelings level or spiritual level um, but man it gets tough when you start going against that sure. we're going to find out who Brian is and what he's become you're listening to Project Recovery right here on KSL Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. Casey Scott, Dr. Matt Woolley, and our guest today is Brian Heaton. Now, we just heard you talk about your early childhood, wearing different masks uh, and, and kind of figuring out who you are, going against your values and stuff like that. Do you remember the first time you went from fake cigarettes to kind of a real alcohol or substance? I do. Yeah, I, we, Rob and I were talking about this on the way down. It was, uh, it was this... Uh I was at my my buddy's grandparents' condo. They were gone. They were out of town. Then maybe there was six of us, uh, eighth grade, fourteen years old, and we were playing cards. And the loser of the card game, we were making these uh, drinks, not with alcohol, but at first, but with mustard syrup and milk. It's like if right you lose the, if you lose the hand, you have to drink this classic junior high game. Um, yeah, yeah. And that progressed to hey, what's you know. 
let's try some of that, the, the alcohol under the, the counter. The, the next person to lose this card game um, has to drink some of that. And man, 30 minutes later, we were uh, walking down to the convenience store in cowboy hats and, and carrying whips. And uh, <laughs> I mean, everybody was a little, a little, a little tipsy, huh? It was a little tipsy. And, and but I remember um, feeling free. I remember feeling this relief of like, man, this feels better. This feels this feels better than it felt before. And I would say back to your comment about like not so much anxiety. I'm not going to argue that because I don't know you, but um, a lot of times people get anxiety. They they think it's the same as like nervousness, like and that can, that's part of it. Can be a lot of times physically an anxious person feels it and they feel very like nervous, right? in their body. A lot of times our anxiety is more of a, a cognitive tension, mm-hmm. like like a, a pressure to do the right thing or to, to do things a certain way. A lot of shoulds going on in our brain. And you get used to that. You don't realize that you're carrying that pressure around with you. And I think we've had a lot of people on the show say the first time they had a drink or the first time they took a pill, all of a sudden they felt that freedom. Like, oh, mm-hmm. they felt released from that. And I think that is a yeah, it is a type of of anxiety. Or people say this is what other people must feel like. Yeah, this is oh, this is normal. Yeah, and well, just so you know, you can challenge me as much as you want, and I'm open to it. <laughs> yeah, that, that's how we learn. No, but right? I mean, I just think... learning to think a little more broadly about anxiety. Yeah, I, I work in anxiety all the time with yeah. people, and a lot of times people go, "Wow, you're right. I guess I." I yeah. do have anxiety, but it's not in the way I think of. Same thing that people do with depression, right? I talk, men are the worst at this. Men are like, well, I'm not depressed. Yeah. And what they mean is I'm not staying at home in bed crying because that's what they saw on TV growing up. Mm-hmm. And that's still what is said about. But for, for depression, a lot of times it's irritability. You know, it's negativity. It's pessimism. It's not necessarily sadness. And so when we realize, oh, you're right, I am depressed or, oh, you're right, I am anxious, that opens up opportunities to get help. Yeah, if you're open to it. Yeah. Yeah, which yeah. I am. So, yeah. You're doing great. <laughs> yeah. So you're in eighth grade. You got cowboy boots on, cowboy hats, a whip. Uh, you're sure. hammered. You're walking down the street. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, mm-hmm. And you say, this feels different. This feels better. This feels better. This feels free. This feels like uh, maybe I can be myself without repercussion. Maybe I can. Um, maybe I, I felt like I was a little you know, funnier, taller, more handsome, et cetera. All of the sudden. I mean, I was standing... On top of the world. So the um, day after, uh, you and your friends, do you think, hey, maybe this is our jam. Maybe this is what we do. Or did you feel a ton of guilt? Both. Right? Yeah. Well, both. So I, I felt like it was, uh, for me as a person, even even as at that age, I, I, I did have the sense like, man, I shouldn't do that. Um, and I don't know if that came from the, the religion or if that came from just me as a person at that point. Um, but I, I did have some of that, uh, followed by, you can't tell anybody about this and followed by, we should probably figure, figure out how to do it again next weekend. So um, I'm already, you're starting off. Did you talk to any of your, were your friends also in a similar position where this was the first time they drank and I believe so. And did you guys yeah. talk about like, are we going to do this again? Like, or was it very private? Your thoughts? Uh, no, we were definitely on board. I mean, I, I think on board to do it again. And, and, and I think in that, that time frame, it was like punk rock music and kind of anti-authority and sure. we're going to do what we're going to do and we're going to have fun and, and grow up. And, um, 
all buy houses next to each other and <laughs> whatever you know, guy says. You know? yeah, and get you a know. van. Yeah. Yeah. You know, hang um, out with the girls and have a good time and, and let's let's do that again. So it started continuing. You guys would do it uh, frequently or just whenever you could get a hold of it? Hard to get it. And this is back in the mid-90s. And so, um, the, the you know, there I, at least I, I wasn't aware of, of other narcotics around or at that point even marijuana or um, so it was kind of alcohol when we when we could get it, but we would also dabble in uh, like drinking Robitussin because mm. uh, we we found out from you know somebody that that worked too, um, and worked in quotations meaning like it, it messes you up, but it's not fun. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But guys like you and I, mm-hmm. I know, and and Rob is like even even if it's not fun or it doesn't feel great we still do it which is a little crazy stupid but we <laughs> yeah. do it yeah just to be altered so then you move into high school now to high school uh, you're kind of still on that same path and not touching any substance not you know no I'm, i mean i'm 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 i would call it socially uh partying here and there because i got to keep my grades up for baseball i have a girlfriend so i want to do right by her and her family and my family and I need to pass the sacrament on Sunday and head towards a mission. So um, it's still a mixed bag of, of uh, Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah, of, I was going to say, kind of did that further that, that the divide between your Jekyll and your Hyde side? For sure. And, and I think as you get older, maybe it becomes more intense. And the consequences might get a little bigger. When you start burning bridges with, with people and relationships and um, – or you get kicked off a team, or or you get kicked out of school, or and those are just examples. Um, I didn't get kicked out of school until later in college, but. <laughs> so, you know, at any point in high school, did your family get clued in on the Jekyll and Hyde persona, or did you have them pretty much snowed the whole time? No, M- master manipulator, um, master uh, at covering my tracks, or uh, until it, they got too messy later on in life but in in high school it was a little easier to bring home a, a good report card or or hit a home run in the game and people are happy for you and um you know or do what you got to do on sunday and and so as long as you're checking those external boxes i think people don't look a little deeper maybe yeah. than they should um don't you think that's uh one of the i don't know one of the risk factors that all of us who are parents can fall into i mean sometimes we look at those external factors like grades and we assume, oh, my kid's doing well because they're getting good grades or my kid's doing well because they're involved in positive things like music or sports or, you know, extracurricular activities. Um, My kid's doing well because they get up and go to church with me on the weekend. Um, And and I think as a parent, it's hard because we're trying to manage our own lives, right? Our work and paying the bills. And sometimes we over rely on those external factors as indications that our kids are doing well when in fact maybe we don't really know what's going on in their lives. Yeah, it helps us. I think it helps us feel comfortable. I have three kids, 10, 8, and 4, so they're they're pretty young. But even, I mean, now knowing what I know, living how I've lived, um, I'm not going to be a, a, a perfect parent, but I uh, hopefully I have some additional tools to check in with them on an internal level. It's like right. I know you're scoring goals in the soccer match and I, and it looks like your grades are pretty good and I know you like to read, but like, how are you feeling? Yeah. So when do things start to get ugly for Brian? 
things started to get ugly when um, the the Jekyll and Hyde life be, turned into decisions. If that makes sense, meaning uh, I'm going to go on a mission. Okay, that was one of the big decisions. That's uh, a for two the L- year commitment. That's a two year commitment yep. for the LDS Church, um, and it was for a number of reasons. I felt like I wanted to. That was genuine. I felt like I could get clean if I went off of – at that point, I was using Oxycontin and marijuana on a daily basis. and So um, you looked at it almost as a rehab. Sort of. But I also wanted to go help uh, Go I, help people. It makes sense. I mean, I'm, um, I'm not judging. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, you can see how people would think that. It's like, this is going to get me – it's going to be a control-alt-delete. This is going to reboot me, get me back on uh-huh. life's plan, and these are the things that I think I need to be doing. Yeah, back no, in, back in those days, you were 19 when you went on a mission, right? I, I was a little older. We were a little older. Yeah. So how long had you been doing that sort of daily use? Uh, shortly after high school. I, I think that's when uh, that particular drug started to come around, uh, OxyContin, mm-hmm. um, when it was kind of the opioids, so like 0102. Um, somewhere yeah, in that kind of late nineties, early two like thousand. Yeah, yeah, it was just seemed to be everywhere, and and I had some people close to me, some friends that that got into this kind of oxycontin um, situation yeah. uh, up there in Davis County, and and so it was available, and it's a you know it's powerful a powerful drug. drug. Yeah. So once once uh, you snort, ingest, whatever. That drug, it's it uh, got a hold of you. It's a different ball game than smoking weed and drinking at the pool party. Um, it's a different ball game. It's a daily fuel situation at that point, and it was immediate for me. It was. So did you end up going on the mission? So I call it the MTC West mission. The MTC is a missionary training center because uh, I was there for two days, um, and I, I went down there, um, started withdrawing. You know, which I didn't totally expect. So physically, I was I was pretty sick, and then I I did feel some 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 guilt and shame about being there, uh, unworthy in quotations. Now at this point in my life, Cause just I, for the listener, like in order to be able to be allowed to go on the mission, you would have had to say, "I'm following the church's word of wisdom," which means I'm not using any drugs or alcohol. Yeah, and not, haven't for a period of time. And haven't for a long, long enough time that they said you're good to go. So you, mm. you must have lied about. So that. I lied about it. Yeah, oh, of course. I mean, I, um, and I, and I, I was really good at justifying my lies. It's like I, I'm going to lie about it so I can go and clean up and start doing the right thing. So maybe I'll, I'll get right with God at a later date. But I think He understands the decision today. Because uh, if I if I tell the truth about it, I won't be able to go, and then I have to deal with, um, you know, waiting longer and parents and and other people being disappointed about that, and um, they already have this farewell planned and yada yada yada. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go. Well, the truth is, at that age, uh, maybe at any age, the, the that um, that pressure to be seen in a positive light is very powerful, and I think. There are probably a lot of people listening to the show today that went into their MTC experience in a similar way for various reasons that they just felt like, man, I don't want to disappoint or upset anyone. Uh, It'd be humiliating. So I'm going to keep some of these things to myself. And I've talked to a lot of people that that, uh, that, that's sort of like an infection that doesn't go away. It's hard to manage uh, knowing that you're being dishonest with yourself and with, with your religion. So, yeah, absolutely, and and so and so I lived 
the next chapters of life going through this. Uh, but you came home in two days. What brought you home? He was going through withdrawals and... I know, but I want to hear like, like, yeah, was, how did like did did somebody look at you and go, "You're not okay"? Or no, I I went to the uh, what do you call it uh, a zone leader or somebody that was in charge of our little group, yeah, and was just like, "Um, I need to go home." I, I just kind of just approached him and told him like, hey, "This isn't right for me," and and I think they they tried to keep me and you know, we'll talk to us about it and what's going on. This is pretty normal to be you know, homesick and, and afraid here for the first little bit. And it's like, well, actually, I have this going on back home with uh, with with drugs and alcohol and with, with girls and with this and that. And then they kind of looked at me and said, all right, yeah, I think you need to go. Like I'm, do- <laughs> I'm dope sick, not homesick. <laughs> yeah. So you come yeah. home and then the family off obviously is aware of your home and, and you're going to have to deal with those repercussions. Yeah. Well, I mean, I had that. Some of that, I mean, I think my, my father – um, well, I remember being pretty disappointed. Um, he didn't say that he, he didn't. Um, and I love my dad, but I think he, he picked me up and I just remember him crying from the time they picked me up until we got home. Like no talking, mm. just crying. And, and my mom was in the car as well. They were divorced at the time, but they came and picked me up and, um, you know, I, I would have, maybe I would have liked to had a conversation at that moment in my life. Um, and I, it's, I'm not blaming them. They, my parents are awesome. They did the best they could, I think. Um, but was that sort of part of the family culture? Was it hard to have meaningful conversations in your family? Yeah. So my family is uh, deflect with sarcasm and humor. Yeah. And sweep it under the rug, uh, especially if it's painful. And and so you can see how that, that everybody suffers in a family of good people when that's the style because you can't get to authenticity that way can you no yeah no it just it just it it, uh it it keeps driving the masks and the external and the um and the fake for lack of a better word just like the acting i'm a two thumbs up everything's good guy yeah and so (laughs) if i can get you off my back with a joke or 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 you know some sarcasm or or anything like that i'll that's now you're my, speaking Casey's language. Yeah, that's oh, my I'm cruise saying. control. Yeah. That's my autopilot. So you're back home, um, taking it. You didn't get off the drugs. No, I went right back to it. I mean, that night I was I was uh, tripping on acid up at a cabin. I mean, so it was it was. Uh, <laughs> Josh had a giggle on that. One. Yeah, <laughs> it was full speed ahead, and yeah. which I think then it starts coming into play. It's like I'm a failure, uh, at least in that area of my life. It, I'm I've just failed that. I'm gonna. So I'm going to own this part of me, and I'm just going to run with it. I'm just going to run. I'm going to run with it. I was I was still interested in playing ball, and I had some connections that that uh, I had an opportunity to play at back then. It was called Rick's College. So, yeah. Uh, so now BYU Idaho, but back when they had athletics, church school. Yeah, church school. Um, so kind of played my way and, and reconnected with some people up there, and they said, "Yeah, we'll still we'll pay for half of your school. Come up." Uh, let's get you cleaned up up here. Uh, so I was honest with them about what was going on. Um, so I went up there, signed the honor code, um, you know, no drugs, no alcohol, no sex, go to class. I mean, uh, you have to dress, wear, wear this, shave. Yeah. Um, okay, yes, yes, yes. Shaving my, is the one that always got me at BYU. <laughs> yeah. My intentions were, were, were good. Were pure. My intentions were to go play ball, 
change my life, uh, uh, clean up, see what, see what, let's go give it a go. Um, and I, f- I felt like that place uh, helped me in a lot of ways. I, I knew it was a positive place. There were some amazing people up there, coaches, teammates, who I still talk to to this day, uh, some friends. Um, but I, I got back into partying pretty quick up there um, and found some teammates that, that would and found some, some other students that were kind of living uh, on the edge in the back alleys yeah. of Rick's College, you know doing the having kava parties and, and such. Um, <laughs> well, there's always, there, you know, if you want to find it, you all, you can find it anywhere. Right. And, yeah. And it was, it was a part of me. It, it wasn't uh, where I lived or, or who I was around or it, it was me. It, uh, I didn't know anything about the disease of addiction at that point or at that time. I had never considered getting help at that point. Um, Did you just think it would work itself out? I thought I was smart enough and capable enough <laughs> that eventually I was going to figure it out. You can outsmart it, right? Yeah. Because yeah. at that point, I I was using to to wake up and go to practice and go to class. I mean, I, I just had to, to have the energy um, to, to function. I wasn't having fun. It, it, it just became who I was when you wake up and, and you ingest it and then you get, you get on with your business. Um, so, but, but yeah, it was eventually, like, eventually I'm going to sort this out and figure this out. I didn't have any friends that had been to rehab or treatment or, um, I was naive to that whole world. So, so is this um, the college you got kicked out of? That's the college I got kicked out of. And, and, uh, yeah. And I was pissed. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. Uh, I was pissed because I thought it was unfair and I thought they were judging me and, and, and tied that resentment to the religion um, this, this super judgy religion at that point that kicks me out of school and they're supposed to, you know, forgive and have your back. And that's not what Jesus would do. And, and so my religious resentment kind of took off at that point. Um, and it became more anti, more vocal, anti, uh, religion. Um, and things got pr- pretty dark from that point. Um, moving forward. Now, having said all that, uh, somehow managed to get married in the temple to my high school sweetheart um, and ruin all of that within a matter of a few years. Um, and, and that's really that relationship crumbling. By that time, I was, I was 27, um, separated from that. Um, thank God for her, <laughs> really, and her family. Um, cause, cause, uh, that was all just dishonesty and manipulation. And I mean, she didn't know that I was using the, the, the entire time mm-hmm. and that was four years. And so, and she had known me since high school. So, um, put, put her through a lot, but, um, kind of the, the catalyst moment for me, if we can go there, maybe. Is this um, your rock bottom? Yeah. That's here. Yeah. Was, uh, so separated, separated there. Um, no real identity or, or career. I dropped out of three colleges, kicked out of one. Um, and for a guy that, that, that I felt like I was capable and smart and, and, and able to do some things in this world. Um, so I started thinking about suicide. It's like, man, you've failed everything that you've done and it doesn't really make sense. And you're addicted to drugs and 
she doesn't want you anymore and, and they're looking at you different, even your buddies that use, when they start looking at you a little different, um, that's a different feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm by myself. I'm in my, my mom's uh, – uh, uh, I love my mom. She's a, she's a, she's a good codependent uh, and couldn't, couldn't kick me out in, in, on the street and so um, – which isn't necessarily healthy, but um, I'm in the basement. I'm on a, a a twin mattress, and I'm coming off of heroin. By that point, I was using heroin, uh, IV heroin user. Um, so it had gotten really serious, really serious, and and I had kind of accepted if if this next shot takes my life, like it's probably. So be it. Okay, and it's probably justified. My level of shame was like, man, I probably deserve to go. Uh, so I don't hurt anybody else um, or disappoint anybody else. Uh, I've been doing that for a decade. I don't want to do that anymore. Um, so I'm laying down in the basement. My my mom's out of town. I think I'm the only one home. I have uh, the house dog was laying. He laid next to me for two days straight, which is I think dogs, dogs are know. special. They know when, when you're not doing well. Uh, but I'm, I'm withdrawing. I'm about a day or day and a half into withdrawal. Um, and I remember having I, – I have no money. I have nothing. I have nothing to my name to, to go score again that day. But it, that day was different. I, I woke up and um, like I didn't have the energy to go score. I didn't have the – um, like I, I, like I used to steal gas out of garages and put it in the car and then go to Salt Lake to get heroin without any money just cause I could talk somebody into doing it. Hmm. I didn't have energy for those kind of schemes anymore that, that, uh, it's like, man, I'm just done. And so the second thought was like, I think it's time to take your life. And that, that thought that day um, cause that thought was every day, I would say for the last year at that point in my life, it's like, um, but I, I just didn't have the, well, anyway, I just, the thought that day came with some more weight. It came with some adrenaline, which scared me. It came with some, like, um, I still get the, the goosebumps talking about it. It came with like some meaning, like, man, I might do it. Um, and, uh, and then this third thought came into my head is like you should maybe you should ask somebody for help. <laughs> which which me and my friend uh John John Red talk about is that seems like such a simple thing. Yeah. When you've lived a life like that for the last decade or two decades or three decades um and and but that thought that third thought it's like maybe you should ask for help. Maybe you should ask God for the strength to ask for help. And right in that moment, I heard uh, somebody in the kitchen upstairs. Um, and so I, I, I literally kind of crawled up the stairs into the onto the kitchen tile, and it was my older brother Landon. Um, and uh, my my nephew was with him. My nephew was like two at the time. And, uh, Landon wasn't, he was kind of busy doing stuff. And, um, he said, Hey, Brian, can you, can you feed Jack, my nephew? Can you get him some cereal, some breakfast? And I was like, yeah, yeah. Two thumbs up guy. I'm doing great. Um, 
I'll, I'll get Jack some cereal. So I had Jack come over and sit down on the kitchen tile next to me because I was laying down. I mean, I didn't have strength to really, I was just done, you know. And so I tried to feed my nephew some cereal, but I couldn't get the spoon, I couldn't get the food to his mouth because I was, I was shaking so bad. Mm. And so I couldn't feed him. And by this point, I looked up and my brother was like a laser right on me. He was like, like, are you okay? You know? Uh, and I just said, no, I'm not okay, Landon, and I need some help. Um, and right in that moment, my life changed forever. Just the, sim- the simplicity of, uh, with, with a humble, genuine desire of, of just like unloading and saying, I am not okay, and I need some help right now. Um, kind of started the ball rolling to, to detox and then to Renaissance Ranch in 2008. And then, um, you know, getting introduced to the, the world of recovery and that whole language of, of uh, for, for, that, for that spot, our spot at, at Renaissance is 12, a lot of 12-step language. And um, getting introduced to, to men that, um, so a, b- a big thing there is a lot of peer-to-peer and, and brotherhood and culture and and, and sticking together and doing it together, not just while you're in treatment, but after we get out of here, we're going to stick together and do building this thing. Building the community. Uh, so building the community. And then um, I bought in. I bought all the way into to recovery, uh, to the literature, to the, to the meetings, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, sponsorship, uh, service positions, uh, you know, going bowling after meetings. Yeah, I didn't know going, people <laughs> bowled sober. Yes. Yeah, they do. Yeah, yeah and softball. Do. I mean, yeah. to me, I mean, I was, I was like, wait a minute, you guys do this sober? Sober softball. We put together <laughs> an absolute dynasty for about eight years. Um, <laughs> still have trophies in the barn from that that squad. But I mean, just just went all the way in with um, with uh, that that culture of recovery. All the and still am. I mean, I'm still all the way in. But so many people uh, have a rock bottom. They have. You know, they they get into to treatment and they don't buy in 100% like – or my high school football coach would say 110%. He wasn't really good mm-hmm. at math, but apparently you can be 110%. And, uh, and you bought in. What was it about it that you just latched on to? Because I can tell you just really latched on to that. What, what, what did it do for you that you didn't want to let go of? Uh, well – so, so I think pain is a really good motivator, and and I had reached a level of pain, I would, might call it the touchstone of spiritual growth, uh, pain. You know, um, I, I was done, and and so, gosh, I remember early on just laughing like a sober laugh, um, or 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 noticing like the the sky, or or the temperature of just the weather, or um, you know having a uh, you know, working out. So, I mean, all of this was just, I, I never thought, um, it's like sobriety just seemed, I had tried so many times on my own that it just seemed like it wasn't going to happen. And so when it actually started to happen, uh, there was kind of this, just this spark or this flame of, of drive and, and to keep it going. Cause it's like, Oh, it is possible. So it sounds like you experienced that relief from the pain, but also a reconnection with joy. Like like these little things really all of a sudden popped and they did something good for you. Yeah, it, yeah. Re- recovery. It's like the first time in my life. Um, 
I don't know if I can say that, but it's it's one of the the times in my life where things became internal and real on a genuine internal, you know, feelings of joy or or hope or identity or um, that that could be lasting. Yeah. But you think about it, 10 years of running and gunning, you know, and you don't have much of that, you know, the authenticity, the, 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 the joy, you know, you're just, I remember people be like, this is BS, man, because you're having all this fun and we're paying the consequences. But for the last five years, I wasn't having any fun. I was just doing it to get normal, just to, like you said, to make it through the day. This was just part of I mean, it wasn't fun. Yeah. You know what I mean? And as a matter of fact, it was painful because I could look in people's eyes and know that I was letting you down mm-hmm. and I was hurting you and I wasn't the guy I wanted to be. And it was just miserable. So all of a sudden, after 10 years to find the simplicity of life and the joy and laughter of a young child or a cloud in the sky, I mean, you forget about that stuff yeah. I, mean, you, I mean you at one point you couldn't even get a spoon to your nephew's mouth yeah well and let me say this Be, before i could feel those things um I, I failed to mention like i had to learn how to tell the truth and so that preceded the f- the feelings of of optimism and positivity and joy and hope was like i needed to get real and and that particular place <laughs> uh is a kind of a fast track to get real like it's it's uh there's not a lot of bs allowed or permitted down there and um and it's changed a lot over the years but it's still that is still alive it's like man i I couldn't run my shtick or my game or or two thumbs up it even anymore um so i i learned how to tell the truth um i had a therapist down there named steve brown and um he uh, he he could tell I was full of it. He could tell I was a storyteller and that I wasn't honest because um, it, it. So he challenged me mid story if I was lying to somebody to stop the story and admit that I was lying to that person. And I'm and I'm not sure why, <laughs> but I'm lying to you right now. And man, if you try that a couple times, yeah, <laughs> you might learn to to tell start telling the truth. But but man, the dishonesty, the Jekyll and Hyde thing. Uh, and learning how to just tell the truth and get in and not hide and just be yourself. Be authentic, right? Be authentic. And that might have been the first time, certainly in your adult life, where you felt like you could, you were learning to be your authentic self. Is that true? A lot of that is true. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure there was other glimpses or moments where I told the truth and it felt good um, and then kind of resorted back, right, to... uh to, to cruise control or, or being dishonest. But yeah, I, that, that was a moment that uh, came with some conviction to keep it. Yeah. I want to, so, I want to be this guy. I want to stay like this. So what does recovery look like for you now? Uh, it's a lot of people. If I could describe my recovery, it's a lot of, uh, still a lot of 12 steps. So self-examination, step 10, um, a lot of, Connecting with self, with with my God, uh, or higher power, and 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 people, um, and doing that every day, and 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 I I really believe in the one day at a time thing. Like, let's wake up and have a good day today, uh, in in all areas. And um, but recovery for me is also like playing golf and not throwing clubs anymore, <laughs> and uh, and doing things that I love and 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 hanging out with my kids and supporting them and hanging out with my wife and 
supporting her. I got remarried in, in recovery at about two years sober back in 2010. I met Rebecca at a reggae show at Pioneer Park, just literally bumped into her and, and she changed my life for the better in a lot of ways. That's amazing. Um, Dr. Matt, what do you think about Brian's story? I mean, uh, I guess my takeaway is, is a little bit about like the small things are, are sometimes the most powerful things, right? And just asking for help, you know, uh, just being honest. Uh, they're small and they're huge at the same time. Mm-hmm. And uh, when our problems feel big, I think we feel like we have to have these huge, complicated solutions to them. Mm-hmm. But they always start with something simple and basic. And I think your story is a great example of, you know, just being humble and saying, I need help. Help me. And that's always the first step towards real change. Yeah. And for me, I think the takeaway um, – is what you said in the beginning of the podcast was the dishonesty because that really resonates with me and the dishonesty part of lying to loved ones, lying to yourself, you know, and, and sometimes it's saying something just so you don't have to be at odds with them, like to make you feel better because you don't want to have that confrontation or that right. authentic conversation. So I'm going to tell you what you want to hear, even though I don't agree with it because I don't want to have this conversation. Well, I like Brian's two thumbs up guy. Yeah. Right? No, I, was, I, was, I was the two thumbs up He's got that guy. smile. Look at his smile. <laughs> well, yeah, like you can yeah. see that. Yeah. I mean, if I could have three, yeah. I would have done three thumbs up. You know what I mean? Because that's what I wanted yeah. to be. And so sometimes you need to be honest with people, even if it's not exactly what they want to hear. And you've got to be honest with yourself. But that yourself. starts with being honest with yourself. Yeah. Right? You can't be honest with somebody else if you don't know who you are, if yeah. you're not honest with yourself. Hmm. And so so it starts by saying, like you started off the show and like you said today, I'm an alcoholic or I'm, I'm a person in recovery. You know, whatever it is, you have to be honest with yourself. And then you can tolerate the fallout that often happens when you're honest with other people. Let's, let's be honest. Being honest isn't always popular with the people you're talking to, yeah. right? And we... I'm a pleaser by my personality. I know that. And I know that I fall into that category a lot by just saying to people what they want to hear or, you know, like it's easier that way. But it isn't in the long run. It's just that you're just buying a little short-term peace for long-term misery, right? And so, yeah, you got to be honest with yourself so that you can have the ego strength to be honest with other people because they're not always going to respond the way you'd like them to. Well, Brian, thank you for stopping by. And here's the thing. I I want to hear. Go ahead. I want to hear more about... uh, Well, I'm going to tell you this. We're going to have a bonus episode, and we're going to do it, record it right now. You'll be able to go listen to it. It's all about the village effect. We're going to team him up with a good friend of the show, Rob Eastman, and we're going to find out what amazing things they are doing to help the community. You are a media professional. Uh, Well, I'm figuring... You are. I'm I'm, I'm winging it, bro. (laughs) Dude, do you... Two thumbs up. Two thumbs up. You're listening to Project Recovery. It is a KSL what? (laughs) Podcast. of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program.
KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind, only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.